Welcome to Long Live the Music, a podcast from It's All Dead, made by music fans for music fans. I'm Kyle Hawk. All right, welcome to Long Live the Music. I got it right. I got the name right. This is my first time, other than the trailer episode, calling it uh, Long Live the Music instead of It's All Dead. But I'm Kyle Hawk, editor-in-chief at a website called It's All Dead that also has a podcast, this podcast you're listening to, called Long Live the Music. And I'm so glad that you are joining us today. I'm excited. We've uh, This is a new beginning, a new era for our show um, and, and all that we do. And I'm excited to do that. I'm joined today alongside... Um, another it's all deadian uh nadia alves nadia what's up hey what's going on not too much uh doing the first official long live the music it's uh, crazy episode. it is crazy so i know we announced this change and everybody's gonna listen to this episode and be like oh this sounds pretty much the same probably <laughs> i don't know but i i do think that um i feel more focused uh going into this i feel a little bit more excited um with having some direction um, but I don't know. What is it? I don't know. We're we're calling the show "Long Live the Music" now. What does it mean to you? What is doing this podcast like? How do you envision it? I kind of agree with you. I feel like it's a step towards like not being an amateur music podcast anymore. Um, even though you guys have always been pretty good at it, but I feel like it's just I don't know. It just feels like more official now than it ever has before so very official um well the funny thing is you know a lot of our episodes are going to be really focused this one is going to be a little more meandering because you know i think before at least for me um and i've got some uh interviews lined up we've got some kind of more focused specific episodes you know coming down down the pike here but before we did that i feel like there's like five things that we wanted to talk about. And so we're going to use this episode to kind of knock out a few things, but I do think that they all kind of tie together. We're going to talk about the return of uh, Demi Lovato. We're going to talk about Taylor Swift's re-release of Fearless. And we're going to talk uh, about Julian Baker, not just the new album she released recently, but about um, the upcoming tour this fall and winter and uh, talk a little bit about our thoughts around uh, what the return of live music could look like and what it could feel like. And I do think that when we talk about this, it's all going to you know, come together a little bit. Um, so before we get into all that, though, I just want to take a couple minutes. Uh, just um, yesterday, we we're recording the well, two days ago, we we're recording this on Sunday, April 11th. Um, but on Friday, DMX passed away. He'd been in a coma for about a week. And um, I, I couldn't not say something. Um, I've actually got an episode coming up here in a few weeks in which we're going to talk a lot deeper about DMX. Um, but just since we're two days into it and I've been listening to DMX like nonstop this weekend, I just wanted to acknowledge like what a, um, what a sad, uh, sad thing this is. And it's been like a lot for me to process. Um, you know, if you come to our site and you listen to this podcast, you know about my love for hip hop. And, you know, by 1997, um, I was like just really diving in and exploring hip hop as a genre. And by 1998, it was like my entire world. And of course, 1998 is like inseparable from uh, the hold that DMX had on uh, not only hip hop, but pop culture at large. I think Shea Serrano had tweeted something on, on Friday about how there's like very few instances in hip hop history where the greatest rapper alive was also the most popular rapper alive. And DMX that run that he had from like 98 to 2000 is just like crazy. Um, and he his his music was so foundational into my explorations into the genre. And of course there's, there's a lot to unpack when we look back on 
late 90s hip hop and uh, a lot of things to kind of sift through and work there, uh, work through there. Um, but, you know, more than anything right now, I'm remembering DMX as um, just the spirit um, that he brought to the genre, the passion that he had around his music um, and, uh, and his life. And I just, uh, yeah, it's really sad to, to say goodbye. Um, like I said, we're going to talk about this a little bit more on an upcoming episode, but just wanted to pay a few respects here at the top of this one before we jumped into the main show, um, which we're going to do now. And Nadia, you had texted me last week, um, about Demi Lovato and, you know, she put out a new album a little over a week ago. I know this is an album that you were wanting to talk about, but just Demi in general. And I know that you've had a lot longer journey than I have with her. Um, she's obviously been a part of my uh, music fan experience of like, you know, Cool for the Summer. It was like a a, a jam, you know, several summers ago. Uh, she's done some stuff with Fall Out Boy. Um, I mean, Demi Lovato is somebody that's kind of been this tertiary person um, I, I've never like listened to a full album until just recently, but um, her story is definitely fascinating. And it, I want to kind of have you kick it off by telling me a little bit about what um, what it was about this new album and, and Demi in general that made you uh, kind of want to talk about this. Yeah, for sure. So um, I grew up in the Disney Channel star era. Uh, I was probably, you know, 12 at that point, give or take a few years. Um and she was always kind of my favorite of the Disney kids. Uh, I never really got into Justin Bieber or Miley Cyrus or any of those so, like stars that we saw on TV and in the Disney Channel movies. Didn't go through a Jonas Brothers phase. Um, but I always liked Demi Lovato. There was something about her persona that she had like originally brought forth as she was kind of the edgy kid, like kind of got had a little bit of a punk vibe. So I kind of resonated with her and. Could, Oh, excuse me. Camp Rock is actually one of my favorite Disney Channel original movies. I watch it all the time. Mm. Um, so yeah, I've been kind of following her based on that background of just kind of growing up with her music and her acting. Um, so yeah, it's been like kind of kind of a bummer to see like how her story has played out. And I do feel very bad for her. And I hope that this is a, a chance for her to really find some healing. Um, but Dancing with the Devil is been quite the album this past week for me um i've really taken a deep dive into it so yeah i'm excited about this next chapter for her yeah it's definitely a, a comeback story and it's something that i think everybody's been rooting for um with her just everything she's gone through from um you know substance abuse and addic addiction challenges to um you know even some of the um, information that she's just made public about some of the abuse that she's suffered on the sets of you know shows and movies that she's worked on and it's um, she's had to overcome a lot, and th and this album embodies so much of coming back from from that struggle. There there were two albums that stuck out in my mind when I listened to this that I thought of for two different reasons. The first is kind of obvious. Uh, I thought of Kesha's Rainbow a few years ago, which was also a comeback album of sorts that was very clearly directed at um, the you know abuse that she faced and the challenges that she faced as a woman in music and and you can definitely see the parallels between um, the art of of Kesha and Demi Lovato and then I also thought of Halsey's um, Hopeless Fountain Kingdom which is another album that like sonically sounds a lot like this where there's like this undercurrent theme and vibe to the album but it's just a little bit uneven. Um, you can also almost break this album up into like three or four song chunks, I feel like. And it, it doesn't 
flow as well as I would like it to, but you can listen to it in sections and it makes like more sense to me, I think, than it does if I listen to it all the way through. And that's kind of how I felt with that Halsey album. And also their voices are very similar as well, but it's capturing that kind of like uh, juxtaposition between darkness and this light that she's found or that she's trying to move toward. Um, I don't, I, what, you know, what did you feel as you were listening to it? Yeah, so I haven't gotten a chance to watch the documentary yet. I've been reading a few articles here and there about it. Um, I just haven't gotten a chance to sit down and go through it. But um, I feel like the album and the documentary are very closely related. Um, Like, I feel like you really do have to watch the documentary and listen to the album. It's definitely not a standalone piece, um, which is really shown in the title of the track, which is called Intro, which is just a quick spoken word about her Mm -hmm. kind of moving from these first three songs, which are very clearly about the overdose that she experienced in 2018 and how it affected her family um, and how she's kind of taking the rest of the album, which the album is, I think, 19 songs long. So it's a pretty hefty piece of work Um, and how she takes the 16 other songs and really does show us how she is, you know, willing to rebuild her life and really willing to rebuild those relationships and really like willing to, get back into music again. And I think in a way that she wasn't able to because of the things that she was dealing with, um, in her personal life. Yeah, for sure. The, the cool thing about, um, one of the things that I've enjoyed about this album, and and this is like going to look bad on me because I, I think I, in the past, and again, I, I never like dug in on Demi Lovato. I never like really, you know, I, I could only tell you like, yeah, I know her from this song or that song. And that, and that was like all I knew, but I think I viewed her as sort of like this pop 40 or, you know, top 40 pop radio artist, um, as opposed to like really understanding like all the different facets of what she can do as an artist. Um, and this album feels like that for, it feels like, Oh, I feel like I was missing out on something here. And maybe it's just because this album like transitioned to, to something a little bit more, uh, deeply artistic and interesting. Um, but I also want to be fair and be like, hey, maybe this is like what she was capable of all along. And I just hadn't really given her a fair shake. But I know when I listen to it now, it, I'm just one, I'm there's moments on that album that are just breathtaking from her vocal standpoint, like what she's capable of as a singer is incredible. Um, but I, there's just so much there that isn't you can't just kind of like passively listen to it and that's what i like about really great pop music um am i so i I need you to tell me if i'm like getting that totally wrong or if if there's something there um that i'm that i'm hitting on no i think you're right and what's funny is like looking back on the movies that she was in and the tv shows where she used her singing as like part of her characters she is one of the few disney channel stars who i can say was always allowed to use her full vocal range um like selena gomez she got into music very casually and she's a a good singer she's a good artist but she was always much more of an actor and same thing with miley cyrus until she kind of broke away from the hannah montana mold and even thinking about ariana grande and how when she was in her her i'm sorry all of a sudden uh, disney nickelodeon shows she was totally dumbed down as a character and like i just feel like that's the business. You know, we look at even you're talking about Kesha and we think of Kesha, we think of TikTok and uh, Die Young and all of those songs is just like party anthems and there's no real substance behind it. And these people are like these women, I don't even want to say people because these women were truly facing struggles behind the scenes that they were just not allowed to talk about and not allowed to show because they had to keep up that facade of 
happy child star, happy, Mm -hmm. you know, teen pop singer who sings for parties. Um, So I think that's one of the things that really stood out to me about Demi is because her voice has always sounded very mature. Um, She's always been able to use her full range. And now I feel like she's able to use her full artistic range as well. She's not just playing a character who can sing. She's truly a person who has a vocal talent, but she also has an artistry to her as well that she's finally allowed to kind of like pull out of her back pocket and really use and show us what she can do. Yeah. That makes the Kesha comparison like so much more vivid when you think about um, women artists who are kind of like trapped within what this construct is of what they're supposed to do with their art and then what that can look like on the other side and what we're starting to see just as kind of the the walls are starting to break down a little bit just in terms of um, major label control and outside influence that kind of take away the um, the autonomy that an artist has. And I think this is a great time to transition uh, into Taylor Swift because you know we wanted to talk about um, her release of Fearless, Taylor's version. She completely re-recorded um, Fearless. She's recording re-recording all of her first six albums uh, for which she does not own the masters and has not been able to um, get access to actually own her own music. And, you know, the uh, the label that she was on for those first six albums, Big Machine Records, like nobody knows the name of that label if it's not for Taylor Swift. Like she literally made something or, you know, something out of nothing and, and more than something. I mean, she's probably the most uh, one of the most powerful and influential artists of our time. Um, and there's all kinds of ways to talk about what she's doing with these projects. I'm a huge fan of it um, just because I, you know, I, I love anything that's going to stick it to the man, uh, literally and figuratively in this regard. Um, and, and there's a whole lot, we don't have to get into like all the backstory of what this is, but I think at the, at the base level, it's her taking back, uh, control of her own art and her own music. Now, something that you and I have been talking about is, um, from a fan perspective, you can listen to fearless. And if you're not paying attention, it sounds like fearless, right? I think there's more, um, more to it than that. And I'm going to talk a, a little bit about my, my perspective there here in a minute, but what, um, I don't know, do, how does this, uh, this fit into the the overall conversation and what were your kind of first impressions of what you heard from, uh, fearless? Yeah. So like I told you, I never really grew up a big Taylor Swift fan. Um, so I have, <laughs> um, actually still never listened to the entire original, recording of fearless i only listen to the soundtracks uh, uh my gosh what am i talking about today wow i'm like super tired um the original <laughs> recording that she did back in 2008 um and so listening to taylor's version was actually the first time i have experienced the album in the full way um and that was like very interesting to me and i almost feel like that's a way that she wants it um which i feel like is kind of interesting for me to have taken in fearless the way that she did originally intend it to as somebody who owns her music and the songs that she wrote when she was, you know, 13 and growing up and singing at the bluebird cafe in Nashville. Um, and yeah, so I was struck that when I listened to the singles that I had been hearing over all of, you know, the past, I don't know how many years it's been 11, 12 years, um, that they did still sound the same. And it wasn't, it's not that it was disappointing. It was just kind of, interesting to me that she didn't really want to put her own spin on it. Like she truly did re-record the album. Right. Well, and you know, I mean, obviously the concept there is um, if the goal is for Taylor to 
take back, you know, full ownership of the art that she's created, then you make the exact replica because, um, you know, if she makes something reimagined about it, which would be interesting, people are still always going to want to listen to the actual version, right? So what all she's doing here is saying, hey, next time you want to listen to Fearless, listen to this one. Um, that way you're supporting me as opposed to Scooter Braun or whatever, right? So the the goal is to give the option of like, you know, which <laughs> who who are you going to put your streaming num- dollars and and uh you know buying power toward and if you believe that the art artist should have full ownership of their art in this case knowing what we know of the backstory then you would listen to fearless taylor's version um now i i think the way that she compensated for the fact that she's recreating something you know almost identical is by opening the vault with all these additional tracks that were a part of um, the, that album's creation that never saw the light of day. So we're getting like a ton of like new tracks from that time period that previously never existed or we'd never heard. And I think that's what um, kind of makes up for anybody that's saying like, oh, I wish this would have been like a different version of Fearless or something. And I actually, there's a lot of like the From the Vault tracks that are actually really good. Um, and, and overall, I mean, this is like 20 some tracks <laughs> to take in. So even if even if you're like a major Taylor fan and you're like, well, I'm bummed that it sounds the exact same, at least there's a lot of like new stuff that wasn't there before. Um, at least that's that that's the best way I can kind of think about the way that she's approaching it. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think actually now, like thinking about that, you were saying how much you like the songs from the vault. Some of them I liked better than what I was hearing on the songs that made it to the final album. Um, I loved Mr. Perfectly Fine because I do love a good dig at a Jonas Brother. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think that some of those songs were really full of potential and you wonder why she didn't release some of them earlier. And you wonder like if it really was the label holding her back or if it was being saved for a time like this, where she really wanted to release them the way she had planned like to when her contract was finally up. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a good question. You know, obviously I think the original album was like 13 tracks long and then there were like, you know, even four or five bonus tracks released on the deluxe edition. So, I mean, there's always going to be more songs that you haven't heard, but it is interesting of how good the, from the vault tracks are. And I imagine maybe some of those weren't fully ever recorded past a demo point. So now that she's able to like more, you know, she's got what, uh, 15 years as an artist since the time that she would have originally written those. So if she comes back to him now, you can imagine that they're going to maybe be a little bit more fully realized than they were when she was, you know, 16, 17, 18 years old. Um, so we talked about the fact that it's kind of a replica, but I was struck and I, even from the first couple of songs, there was something about an older, more seasoned, more weathered Taylor Swift on these songs. Like you can hear it in her voice at points. Um, even a song like tell me why, where she almost sounds like there's almost like an, uh, an energy and an anger in her voice that wasn't there uh, on the original recordings. There's moments like that where you, there's something beautiful about coming back to something from your youth and reliving those experiences through who you are now. Um, I think all of us kind of have those experiences in our own way, just as being humans, but hearing an artist do that. I don't know if everybody could have pulled it off as well as she did with this, but I, I thought that was really interesting. Um, one of the things you and I had talked about separately from this was um, just this idea, you know, we were t- the Demi Lovato, the, the Taylor Swift conversations were all kind of like part of this big jumble conversation we were having, but it was this concept of, you know, how different 
things are now from they were when even when Taylor Swift was, you know, 15 years old and, and putting out uh, her first album and signing a record deal that she probably had little control over how that that played out. You know, the Internet changed things. Um, and I think it was two summers ago where I did a podcast with Evan Soddy where we were talking about, you know, you look at a Billie Eilish, a little Nas X, like how, uh, you know, the, the major label influence days are gone because people can build their own platform, build their own audience without outside help that wasn't possible before and something like what taylor's doing now is possible in a way that it wasn't before because even if an artist like in the 70s uh was mad about the the deal they were in and wanted to gain back control of their um you know their their masters even if they re-recorded them how are you going to get it out to everybody you would have to like package it and distribute it and like all the money and everything involved in that it just wasn't realistic but because of the internet taylor swift can literally just re-record her albums during a pandemic and put them on the internet and now she has full control of that it's like we truly are in a completely new and different age now and it's really fascinating to think about definitely and you think about like how sad it was a couple of years ago when we were talking about the downfall of the record label and the downfall of the music business in general but it really i i don't want to say it was worth it because like a lot of people lost jobs and stuff Uh, a lot of artists like lost things that they had recorded over the years. But I think that it is worth it in the way that creativity is so much more of a like free entity now that we can actually truly capitalize on it in a way that is like more meaningful. You have people coming out of the woodwork who have been writing songs for years, like Taylor was when she was 15. And you don't have to go to the Bluebird Cafe anymore. You can just get on YouTube and you can say, here's a song I wrote. And a million people can see it. And overnight, you're an incredibly like well-known person. And I just think that's interesting, especially when you talk about somebody like Billie Eilish, who literally recorded when we all fall asleep, where do we go? Like in her bedroom with her brother. Um, But yeah, like all of these kids who are in their bedrooms and doing their own thing like Taylor was, and just never got the chance to be realized as for their full potential can do that now. And I just think that's so freeing as a generation too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, the last, uh, thing I wanted to talk about on the on the fearless thing is you know she's re-recording I believe her first six albums, and so uh, it's interesting that fearless was the first one. I think there were a couple ways to approach this. One is you go in order, but the problem with that is you kind of don't want to start it off with the debut just because I think that's probably her least interesting album. Or I think most people would agree that's probably the one that everyone will be least excited about. So you can't really start there. Um, you could start early and work your way back. But then if you do that, it's like, I, I don't know, fearless. I mean, there, there's a little bit of difference just on the fact that she's older and she sounds like it and she sounds like a different and more confident artist. So maybe that's the reason is you can't start with the first one. So you start with the next closest thing to the first one. And fearless was obviously a really big album, an album that kind of leveled her up from like young country star to like international sensation. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know like what the plan is from here. I think I saw something on the internet about Speak Now was going to be the next one. I don't know if that was, uh, if what I saw was like conjecture, if that was true or not. Um, but it'll be interesting to kind of see how the rest of these roll out. And if all if all it is is like that we're getting like six or seven songs that we didn't have before from those album cycles, I think I'll be like totally fine and, and happy with it. So um, overall, I think this is, this is something, you know, and she put out two new albums last year. It's, it's like, she's kind of a machine right now, just with like how much she's cranking out. Like, I I don't know, you know, just the way that since there's five more of these to do, it's like, when, when is she going to not be owning the moment? You know, is it, 
we at least have another year or two where like every few months Taylor Swift is going to be like back at the front of the conversation. And that's kind of fascinating. I think the reason she picked Fearless first was because of those four Grammys. Um, it's like a way yeah. to throw it back in their face and just kind of say like, yeah, I did earn those Grammys. Like even though you mm. may have helped me when I was a teenager, like they were my Grammys. Um, so I feel like that's probably why she picked Fearless, not only just because it's her most popular album, um, but just really because that's the one that catapulted her all the way to the top to be at the Grammys at 16 years old, you know, winning album of the year. Um, but I think also now that you say like remembering that we're going to get all of these albums again, if she does go the route of releasing all of these songs from all of these different album cycles, we will have technically two more albums Yeah, that are just insane. new, literally new content from Taylor Swift, regardless of how old it is. Um, which is mind blowing to me. She literally, she really, she's a force to be reckoned with. Um, yeah. and that's why she's the artist of the decade. You literally can't beat her. Well, let's, uh, speaking of, uh, other great artists doing things outside the traditional, uh, model. We never got to talk about Julian Baker, um, on the podcast. She put out a new album about a month ago. That was like, it was like that first big weekend of the year where like a whole bunch of awesome albums come out. And so like I, I did that podcast on architects and I was like, so obsessed with that. Um, I've had time to dig into the new Julian Baker album um, now, obviously. And we hadn't gotten a chance to talk about it because you wrote about it as one of your most anticipated albums of the year. You wrote a fantastic review. It's probably the best review uh, that you've written so far for it's all dead. If you, if you, if you're listening to this and you haven't read that review, go to itsalldead.com, uh, check out Nadia's review of the album. Um, but Nadia, where are you at with Julian Baker's album now after we've had about a month to sit with it? Yeah, I did put that one away. It did hurt a lot when I first uh, received it, um, but I, I'm going to pull it back out definitely. Um, it's definitely one of my top albums of the year for sure, and I know that's very um, – ambitious to say in April, but it tr truly is one of the best albums of the year. And I think it's the best album that she's released. Um, it deserves the spot in my most anticipated, even though I didn't know that it was going to be as incredible as it was. Um, but yeah, I'm very excited about uh, what she's been doing lately. It's been eye-opening to say the least um, to see an artist kind of like saying the things that you've been thinking about for the past couple of years. Um, and to see those fully realized in an album is a little bit scary. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I love that album. It's very important to me. It's like you and I both have a really personal experience with Julian Baker for like almost different reasons, I think. And it's fascinating how she can like cut to your core in so many different ways. Um, she's so blunt um, about her life and her struggles in her music and yet as specific as she can be, it can also be like hyper relatable depending on the own experience that you're having. And that's something that's always made her music so beautiful and meaningful to me. And it's also made it hard to listen to. It's not like I just throw on Julie Baker when I want to have a good time. It's like I have to be in a really specific place in order to sit down with her music. And I think that makes it really great art too. Um, but it also makes it harder for me to like dedicate like a stretch of time of like, I'm just going to get into my feelings right now with Julian Baker because that, that's how it is for me but you think about these first three albums I mean out of the gate it's it's almost hard to find a direct comparison with what she's done with albums one two three um it's wild like I mean can you believe this like it's in a matter of like six years we've gone from like hey 
who's this Julian Baker person, you know, playing with this guitar to like, now we're like, oh my God, she just put like three classic albums to like start her career. That's insane. Yeah. And um, let me just say, every time that I hear Faith Healer come on the radio, it's like being attacked um, (laughs) for the first time every time. Um, I'm like, I don't think I can do this today, but okay, here we are going again. Um, But yeah, she really she really did release three classic albums and she reminds me a lot of the women in the seventies. Um, the Joan Baez and the Joni Mitchell and all of those women who were just kind of out there with their guitars and, um, hanging out and making music and enjoying life. Um, well, I guess Julian maybe doesn't enjoy life. <laughs> I'm <Aww>. sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, I just, she has this uncanny ability to just create good music right out of the gate. And I just think that's something that's kind of missing these days. We have we came from such a produced several decades of pop music that now to see somebody come through who has that talent, like right in her little finger and just decides to spit it all out for us. I think it's um, surprising, but it's promising because you know that there's more people out there like her too. Um, But yeah, like, I don't know. I well, was nervous to hear about her going with the full band idea because I thought maybe it was going to take some of the magic away, but it added more somehow. Well, I'm sure we'll do like a full Julian Baker podcast at some point, but let's go ahead and just like rank the three albums. Um, Cause I've been thinking about this a lot and you know, th- this one's so hard cause they're all so good and I have different personal attachments to each of them. So I have to like parse out like, in measure of like how much of my personal inclination is going to this versus like just the um, unbiased, how good it is. Right. And that, and that gets really hard, but I think if I had to rank them right now, I would put turn out the lights at number one, little oblivions at number two and sprained ankle at, at number three. And, and that's again, nothing against sprained ankle. Right. Cause like I, um, even when I put it three, I'm like, oh, that's not fair. That album's better than that. So I don't, I don't know, and it, and it may continue to change. But I think that's kind of where I'm at right now. What about you? Oh my gosh, I was gonna say rapid fire, sprain ankle, little oblivions, turn out the lights. Why are we always exactly opposite on these things? Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So what what uh, brings sprained ankle to number one for you then? There's something about it being that first album that I had listened to, and a lot of the content is the same as the other two, but there's something so um, like special to me as the first album that I had listened to by her and been like, wow, like this girl really knows what I'm dealing with. And I was a lot younger when I listened to that album. It was probably five or six years ago now, I think, depending on when it was released. I can't remember. Um, but yeah, I had actually listened to a podcast on the album. I don't know if you remember a podcast called The Sound in the Story. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, I missed that podcast actually. I wish that that guy would come back and do it. He talked about albums in such a cinematic way. Um, it made me listen, want to listen to every album that he talked about. But he did an, an episode on Sprained Angle. And so I listened to it. And. Yeah, safe to say um, (laughs) my mind was blown from that day and I've been following her ever since because she just had something so, so special in that album that I really like related to. And so it just keeps getting more relatable, which I don't know if that's a good thing. (laughs) Well, even when I put Sprained Ankle 3, two of my three favorite Julian Baker songs are on that album, uh, Rejoice and Everybody Does or 
like literally perfect songs. And so, yeah, it's, it's an incredible debut. It just keeps getting better, better. Um, the, the last part of our conversation today, she announced last week, some tour dates starting this fall, I think in September and October, uh, or when the first dates are, my first thought was I looked at the dates and of course she's playing two dates in Chicago and none in Indianapolis. So that that's hilarious. We're, uh, we're back to the normal Indianapolis getting skipped by tours. Um, but which to be fair, she's, you know, she's played here in Indy, uh, twice in the past few years. But, um, my, then my second thought was like, oh, wait, like we're back to talking about live music and it, and it, you know, as the vaccinations start to roll out, um, you know, and we head into the summer, you know, we're going to have to start having these conversations of like, okay, when does live music coming back? When do gatherings come back? When, do, you know, what, at what point do we start moving that needle back towards whatever normal is going to look like? And so I was thinking a lot to myself, I've, I've got my first vaccine dose now. I'm going to be fully vaccinated by mid-May. I don't, I don't know if I can say that in September, I'm going to be in a place where I want to be like in a small indoor venue for a concert. Um, you know, last year, my wife and I had tickets for Alanis Morissette uh, last July, which obviously was moved. And it's, it's incidentally, this coming September, it's in an outdoor amphitheater. Um, I could see myself like at an outdoor concert in September, depending on what happens with the numbers, depending on what happens with, you know, how many people are getting vaccinated. Um, I could see that, but I'm still not like totally sold on like what my life is going to look like in wanting to go out and, and concerts specifically in a lot of ways are places where you're really packed in. Um, there's a lot of people, it's sweaty, <laughs> you know, it's like, that's no matter what, I, that's going to be a weird thing to go back to whenever it happens. I just don't know if this fall for me is when that is. Um, where are you at? I would actually agree too. Um, I feel like when you're outdoors, you can space people out a little bit more and make it a little bit more um, like emotionally comfortable. But yeah, the indoor thing is just not something I'm really looking forward to yet. I'm still very nervous about it. And I don't know why I was never nervous about it before because I'm not really a crowd person. Um, I don't know. Something yeah. something happened this past year. Um, but yeah, Project 86. I don't know if you've l- listened to them in a while. Don't. It's <laughs> um, been a while. Yeah. They – I am on a – I am in a labeled podcast group on Facebook where I uh, keep up with some of the Tooth & Nail bands. But they did a live show – I want to say a couple of months back, they are very vocally not caring about the whole pandemic thing, oh, um, which we fun. can talk about another time. But um, I don't know. That I want to, <laughs> now I'm sad. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Sorry to ruin your day. Um, but yeah, so they had done a live show and it was in a venue and they had, I forget what the cap was. It was probably not even 50 people, but they had chairs on the floor of the venue in boxes, like duct tape boxes, and you had to stay in your chair the whole time. And I just feel like that's not fun. And I know that will end up being different in September. Hopefully more people will have the vac and will be, you know, kind of back to normal a little bit, but it still makes me nervous. And also I don't really feel like paying so much money for tickets because you know, the prices are going to be inflated like through the roof to sit in a tiny box in a folding chair. Um, so I yeah. just don't know if I'm ready for that yet, but we'll yeah. see. And it's all speculation. Right. It, it's funny that we're over a year into this and it's still so hard to imagine like when things can happen and what it will look like when those things happen. But that's just, that's where we're at. Um, you got to feel good about 
you know, some of the direction we're taking, but you know, at the same time, the, the numbers are going up in a lot of states. It's still, we're not out of the woods yet. Um, but at a certain point, live music has to come back. Um, artists have to have that venues have to survive. Like we we're going to have to approach that conversation at some point and it is coming. Uh, and maybe this fall we'll be in a place to, to better discuss it. I know. I saw something like machine gun Kelly, I think is playing like a full concert like this month or something that's absurd and irresponsible, but like, um, you know, we're all going to have to decide, but I, I do, you know, I, you and I specifically are, we've talked, uh, at ad nauseum about our love of live music and what a weird thing that was to have leave our lives last year. So like, I know that, um, this isn't something that we take lightly or flippant about, um, but it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be a lot to figure it all out. So, um, we will keep all working through it together. Um, yeah, I think that kind of like covers it. We did it. We, uh, we were shooting to go under 40 minutes for this and, uh, and we pulled it off. Congratulations, Nadia. Thank you. I'm actually so proud of us. When you sent me the actual <laughs> outline, I was like, oh my gosh, wow, this is a real planned podcast. And then I realized that I myself had not planned what I was going to say for the podcast and I felt really bad. Hey, you know, uh, when I actually put out, put in some effort and uh, try, the sky is the limit. So <laughs> <laughs> incredible. All right. Well, that is going to do it. Uh, thanks for joining us on Long Live the Music. Come visit us at our website. It's alldead.com. Uh, find us on your favorite podcast app to subscribe. And of course, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We would love to hear what you want to hear from us, what you like about the show, um, what we can do better, all that stuff. Let us know. That is going to do it for today's show. I'm Kyle Hawk, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to Long Live the Music. If you like our show, come find us on Twitter and Facebook at It's All Dead. And of course, come visit our website, itsalldead.com.